Hey everyone, this is Michael. Welcome to the second commenting episode of the In Common Podcast. In this episode, Courtney, Mike, Stefan, and I spoke about our favorite books of 2020, as well as those that we still want to read next year. We thought this would be a good way to wrap up the year for ourselves and for our listeners. In spite of everything that is happening, our conversation left me feeling excited for the things we can all still learn. So happy holidays, everyone. I hope you can take a little time off to read a book you've been wanting to read for a while before going back to work. One thing, because we're on the topic of books, which I think would be useful for people to hear, and also because I'm interested in, in the routines that you all have, is what are your routines for reading? Do you, when do you read? How often do you read? Do you feel like reading is a chore for you because you're in the academic system and you have to either read science books or popular science books, or do you feel like you have to read popular science books because you're a scientist or are you just interested in popular science books for that reason? I would mm. be interested to hear you, your guys' strategy. So most of the books on my list, I've been listening to as audiobooks. Um, one of my main responses to the quarantine has been to kind of drop a sense of uh, kind of holistic obligation where I kind of had fallen in the trap of me trying to be everything to everyone and just being like, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Stephanie, if you remember like early on in the quarantines when like we revamped the website several times and I just started listening to a lot of books and a shitload of podcasts and probably unsafely, I would listen to a lot of podcasts during like very long bike rides. Like <laughs> I, when I was like out in the woods, I figured like if a bear is going to eat me while I'm like listening to a podcast, that's not a bad way to go. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I do worry about that because especially if you're in an urban area, I often listen to podcasts while I'm running and then I, you know, it's its own skill to realize that you're listening to something and that you have to pick routes where it's safe and that you need to kind of detach for a second while you're crossing the street. Well, now I'm in San Francisco and I've sworn to myself that I will not even bring headphones with me on a bike ride because the temptation will be too great. And I think I could get hit by a car if I was listening to like, some thick intellectual tome <laughs> bombing down the streets. I feel like that's when you're less likely to yeah. get hit by a car. If, they, if you're me listening to a podcast, those are the ones that I'm like, okay, what's happening mm. around me now? <laughs> oh, because you're, yeah. <laughs> so, Michael, now that you've switched over to listening to a lot of ebooks, do you feel like you get the same out of it than reading uh, paperback or hardcover? No, I get 75% out of it. And I'm actually, that's, I'm not being flippant there. That's what I think I about get out of it. And I think there's a lot of personal variation there. Um, I just really love audio. And so I actually, to me, like 75 feels like a high number. I could see it being pretty low. I'm also very comfortable in hitting the rewind button. Like all of these apps have this very nice, like rewind 30 seconds. I'll hit that mercilessly. Like I'm, if I have to rewind like four times the same bit because I spaced out on that same bit four times, like uh, it doesn't frustrate me. I'm just like, yeah, I need to, I need to hear it a fourth time. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a couple of levels there. Cause I, what I often do too, is if I see a book, 
I'll, I'll search for a podcast where the author is interviewed talking about the book. And then I think there you get about an hour podcast, probably you get 50% or less, but at least you get the main arguments and the main narrative that the author tries to weave through. And I think it's nice to hear the author saying that in a more informal way, talking about their own work. And I think that's a useful tip. And then probably the audiobook, you can get a little, not a hundred percent, but more, and then reading, you're going to get the most. Yeah, that feels right. I mean, what about the rest of you all? Have you been listening a lot or has it been like on tablets? I, I don't, I, I find that if I'm, if I'm driving, um, for some reason, I lean towards my, my, uh, controls for some reason as if that's where the sound is even coming from um and i feel myself straining to to listen and and don't focus on driving so i i stopped listening to audios uh in the car and just put put music on the car is tricky i like to listen to audiobooks in spanish but then i want to like if i don't know a word i want to look it up which is very dangerous to do while driving so I decided like, I can't expose myself to that urge. So I no longer listen to audiobooks in Spanish while driving. So I, I have start, I actually got an audible subscription. So for, for like fun books, I've started listening more. Um, but I had a, so we had a drive, we drove from spoke or from, um, California up to Washington a couple months ago. And I was alone in the car with a toddler. And I listened to a whole book and it was great. <laughs> and I just ignored my toddler by listening to the book. But I don't know if I recommend that. What book? Uh, Where the Crawdads Sing. Have you guys heard of that one? Mm -hmm. so, I, so it's fiction. Um, it's by Delia Owens. It's really popular. It's, it was amazing. It's like, it's like a mix of this sort of really interesting story with like a natural history of a swamp in I think it's in South Carolina. Anyways, it was it was a really it was a really like um, it was like listening to a natural history book, but with this story woven in, it was really cool. So hmm. I enjoyed it. Courtney, as 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 you kicked us off in in starting to refer reference books uh, for this episode, do you all find that you drop book references in in teaching i i do this all the time um and i found that the students actually like it as something comes up i say oh this reminds me of such and such a book and i found that the students will send me all kinds of messages afterwards saying what was that book recommendation and at the at the end i've had students say can you like make a bibliography of all the books that we reference and i'm like i have no idea because none of those were planned they were just uh things that came up in conversation but i think i'm going to start uh keeping track a little bit better um i think that's awesome i mean one of the things i would love is like so i've started to do that i've done that a little bit with some of the books i've mentioned here it'd be great to have mike like a forum or some kind of repository where we all share the different books we are using in our teaching. Cause I agree students like it. It's like, Hey, here's this other connection that we can make. And here's a fun book. And it's not another PDF with a research method section. Yeah. And I, I should say that a lot of, a lot of mine um, would not be something that you would necessarily put into a class, but it might be something that you'd be interested in reading. Like one, one that I've referenced a lot for a long time at various points, it comes up 
is is a, an older book. It came out in the '80s, I believe, by John McPhee, who was a uh, an essayist, uh, "The Control of Nature," and it's just fantastic. Mike, I, you said you wouldn't assign that in a class. I've assigned that in my class for like seven years. That that one that one I might, but there's others that are 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 more tangential than that. I, I would probably assign parts of parts of that book. I mean, the Atchafalaya chapter, we've we've always had like a week on the Mississippi. The Atchafalaya, it's a fantastic, inter- I mean, I'm, I'm co-opting your story here, Mike, but it's such a cool chapter about the Atchafalaya and the Mississippi. Agreed. That's that's my favorite part. Yeah. I had another book by him, Encounters with the Archdruid, that we did in a class. Yeah, that's yes. awesome. That's a good one. Which is really fun because it's like more of a, I don't feel like you often get, um, you know, stories like that, that have such relevance to class content it's fun when you can weave those in and he's such a good writer another john mcphee book that's on my list that i haven't read is levels of the game i've heard that's good what's levels of the game about i don't know i think it's about tennis but like most of the books that you read it's not actually about the subject i've heard it's uh it's more about strategy and things like this that, that, that reminds me, I once watched, Stefan, uh, a YouTube video about from this guy who had been involved in the design of a lot of video games. And it was called like, the the name of the YouTube video was like Game Theory. And I was like, finally, like a game theory. I, mean, I actually like game theory, but this was like game theory that I would spend like hours and hours thinking about. And it was really interesting. I mean, I think it's, there's a lot of parallels to be drawn across like seemingly totally disconnected enterprises. And this guy was talking about how do you make like a really good video game? And one of the, his, one of his main principles was people don't want to be taught. They want to learn. And so it was like the, and the challenge they were, they were addressing is like, how do you draw people into a game? Cause in the beginning, it's not that much fun to play a game because you have to just like spend your time learning it. So do you have like a really specific tutorial? And he was saying like, no, you don't want like something that feels like a tutorial. You want them already to be playing the game so that they're like having fun and they're not like being instructed. They just, they're getting to learn. And I was like, holy crap, like how do we actually implement that in our own teaching, right? Like how do we make it feel more like a game? Which I think is like, I mean, we, we have this uh, focus now on like active engaged learning, but I think to me, that's almost like the next step, which is like, how do we make it feel like a fun game to them? Cause then they're gonna wanna just like keep doing it. Anyway, the idea of like making a comparison from like games and sports to actually like what we spend a lot of our time doing, I think is really interesting. I like that idea. I mean, science is not a game, but it has a lot of game-like qualities. And I think that's pretty interesting to learn as you navigate through being an early career scientist that there are, you know, there's a lot of attributes. It's like at many things, it's like running through a Mario level. You're running around collecting mushrooms, getting the points, get the gold coin, you go through, you get to the next level. And there's so many aspects about that, that I wouldn't want to endorse. That's the way of thinking about it. But I think it's helpful to think about different processes and how things work. And if, if, if you can take a gamification approach, at least in a very lighthearted way to achieving things, not just in academic work, but other things in your life, then I think it can be uh, more fun, but also helpful and creative. Stefan, I think a part of my brain has been waiting a year and a half for Super Mario Brothers to be mentioned in our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But this this relates to what you and I have been talking about, Mike, a bit. I mean, the the dark side of this, like the the gamification of science can also, like the idea of a high score, right? Like the idea of your Google Scholar page showing your high score. 
And like when people do statistics, they treat R squared as like a high score. It's like, how do I maximize my R squared and, or my AIC, whatever it is. And it's like, that's not exactly the point people, which I mean, basically it gets to the topic of optimization. Someday we're going to get to the books we read, but this is really interesting. <laughs> well, well, it did remind me about when you're saying that about range, because you might mention it a little bit more later, Michael, but I also started it uh, a couple of days ago. And it does talk about in the beginning, how, what is the best way to learn from, they give a lot of or various stories of uh, professional chess mm. players and athletes in the first couple of chapters. And is it best to learn explicitly to focus really hard on one thing and to focus directly on that? Or is it best to learn more implicitly across a range of skills and that that range of skills, even though it's more passive and implicit in how you build and how they combine with each other, then that can lead you in the future, even though if it takes longer towards a path, which is more appropriate. Yeah. I mean, um, since we're on that book, I can mention it as one of my books for the year. It's by David Epstein. He had written a bunch about sports and then he wrote this book called Range. And I've been trying to read more like uh, less purely academic nonfiction books. And it's it's a really great book. It's It follows the... Actually, there's a whole chapter on Nintendo in it. The punchiest lesson that I feel like I got from it was that we need to fight the cult of the head start. The idea that as soon as you pop out of the womb, you're on a treadmill against all the other babies, you know, and I feel like that's just a really uh, pernicious part of a lot of uh, the cultures that that we all exist in. And it just feels like if you can't ever get off the treadmill, then like, what's the point? Like if you can't ever like stop and breathe and enjoy things, and I feel like what I've found is like life doesn't do that for you. You have to kind of purposefully get off the treadmill and be like, no, like that was pretty good. I'm going to like take a break and do this other thing because I just achieved something. Uh, our brains are also not very good at doing that automatically. It's funny, though, because I do feel like this year is maybe a year where the world has done that for you. <laughs> mm, like force uh, you to stop? Well, at least made it more difficult to continue in the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. And for others, a forced stop. And uh, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, because I feel like we've heard different narratives around. I like. I don't um, envy pe parents with kids, you know, in high school and thinking about like that critical period right now where they're really focused on that head start. And like, how do you take care of? the whole person and mental health and well-being but also you know we got to keep things going so when the world restarts we do have that head start you know yeah i think this i think i don't know it'll be interesting mm. to see what we take from this year along those lines of like what's the best for this balance between mental health and well-being and productivity and how we move forward yeah I feel like I heard that people are actually working more this year if they can. Like we're, I mean, people basically are just, a lot of us are just, you know, at a desk in front of our computers even more. Well, we did get a lot of time back for a lot of folks who had to commute right. a lot, for example. At least I, I also did. I got lots of time back where otherwise it would be basically wasted commuting or doing some other meetings where I had to go to. Yeah. So it trimmed down a lot of the excess stuff, which was probably not necessary in the beginning, but you kind of felt forced that you had to do it mm. because it was normalized. 
a lot of meetings, things like that. So Stefan, can we move to start with you? Like what was the book that you read that you liked this year? Sure. Well, this was actually towards the end of the middle of last year, but I thought it would be worth mentioning. And that's Far-Fetched Facts by Richard Rottenberg. It's a bit of an older book, I believe. I'm actually not sure what the published date is. Uh, I think in the, maybe in the late nineties. And it's interesting because it's, he, he's a German sociologist or a German anthropologist, I believe, sorry. And he'd worked for, for a couple of decades in sub-Saharan Africa, looking at development projects and how they work and some of the challenges with development projects. And this book is a, it's a fictionalization of some of his experiences that he writes into kind of a fictional case study, which combines a lot of the lessons and challenges that he learned um, through his years there. And I could tell a little bit more about the details, but I don't think that's the interesting part. I think the interesting part is more about why doesn't development work like we want it to when we put so much money into it and there's so many experts on the ground. And even if all parties are able and willing to work towards the agreed upon goal, why does it still not work? And he does a good job of exploring the spaces in between all of those relationships, the relationship between large international development banks located in Europe, in this case, and regional NGO projects, uh, contracted experts who work in the field, uh, local communities, local governments. And he does a really good job of unpacking why in all the best intentions, even in the case of all the best intentions, it still creates a lot of challenges due to bureaucracy and things like that. And in that sense, it links to some of the narratives, I think, in Seeing Like a State, which is another book that I read this year. And Michael, you've mentioned quite a few times on the podcast, which is, I would also recommend highly to read this book. Uh, but I thought they, to some extent, they were related and I find it, or I found this book uh, really useful. Stefan, if you want to, since they're, I think they are so connected, you, you could also feel free to talk about seeing like a state. Well, yeah, I feel, I, I feel I was a little bit late to the party. A lot of people had recommended it and I hadn't, I hadn't read it up until this year. I found it refreshing, uh, this idea of, I, I don't feel super comfortable giving a full summary of the book, but this idea that we want to move toward this idea of modernization and this idea of top-down control of modernization in many facets of society. And I think he's, I've read some criticism of the book that, you know, it's selective and he's looking at some of these larger structural societal issues in places like the Soviet Union. And he also gives case study, which I thought was interesting in the making of Brasilia and Brazil. And how I think one, one thing which stuck with me was that top-down planning and centralization requires informality to function. That it it requires something and someone somehow to fill in the cracks that it's unable to plan from the above to work. And I think in all the cases that he explores, that's undoubtedly the case that despite the best efforts of central planners, the way that that particular case plays out in the end, the only way that it functions, and many of them don't and many of them fail, is that people find informal ways of navigating and creating spaces for envir either environmental governance or urban development or agricultural production, et cetera. 
Yeah, I totally agree that that's one of the strongest points of the book, the idea that formal order at the very least relies on, but can parasitize or even displace informal order. Mm -hmm. It's like, to me, definitely one of the most powerful messages of that book. Well, it parasitizes it, but it also, it doesn't recognize that it needs it right. to survive. And the anecdotes in that book are just so fantastic. I mean, the, the standardization of weights and measures, the, the creation of last names. I mean, they're just wonderful. Uh, yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. So I haven't finished that book, but one thing that it, I think it's early on the, one of the things that's making me shift how I think about my work and we've talked about it a lot. And I feel like on this podcast around metrics, but about how metrics shape the goals and re, you know, like re envision a system, you know, and I think about this with so much of what, what we talk about with, you know, commonable resource governance or natural resource governance more generally. And like a lot of the ecosystem services world, it's like we're really trying to figure out ways that we can measure things. And then once we measure them, how we can uh, govern to those measurements. And then you throw in the scene like a state, uh, you know, that takeaway of like those metrics really matter um, and they really do shape what you then manage to, which is not, you know, it's not like a groundbreaking realization, but I think it's just, it's a helpful reminder that I need reminding of often. Definitely. I think a lot of the cases he explores, they, the central planners use science as a justification for what they're doing. And I, that was a very powerful argument because I think even looking back on it now, because some of the cases were decades ago in the middle of the century, I think we say, oh, of course, that, that was not the understanding that we have now. But if we take that perspective to how we use science into planning today, I think you can put the same lessons there. It's like, what are we missing now? We, we think we're that the best science we have now is how it should be done in terms of what planning decisions are made or what development or sustainability decisions are made. But in 50 years forward, we might look back and have the same thesis. Um, I'd love to make a connection. I, I don't know if we're going to do this, but I like the idea of like just hopscotching from one book to the other based on the connections our neurons make. Um, my, maybe my favorite book of the whole, well, it's hard. Um, my, one of the, <laughs> I don't want to, we're not going to hold you to whatever yeah. claim. I'm going to have make. like five favorite books of the year. Well, this is the first favorite book of the year, which is, uh, invisible women by Caroline Carrado Perez. I did want to mention it first, really great book listen to it on audio. So at some point I should go back and like read through the whole thing. I first heard about it through the way Stefan you were describing. It was a 99% invisible podcast interview. Roman Mars was interviewing Caroline Crowder Perez. Um, and she described different anecdotes. And the, the basic thrust of the book is that women are often invisible and they're often invisible. The connection I want to make to James Scott is that they're often invisible in the ways they're, they're invisible to people like centralized planners who are often men. They're invisible to formal decision-making arrangements that assume a default male. Um, and then things don't end up working out well for women. Big surprise. Um, for my own process, uh, it's been, so I actually also assigned a part of this book to connect to your point earlier, Mike, to my students uh, in my class in the fall. It's been for me a larger part of the process of trying to diversify like the reading lists, uh, that I use for my classes, 
I'm embarrassed to say I'm, I feel like I'm coming late to that game as well. I've started to think about it just in the last couple of years. Um, so, for example, right, like, it just basically goes through many different examples in which the, the assumption of a default male experience is very problematic for women. The fact that we don't design urban infrastructure um, around the concern that women have around sexual aggression and violence, or the fact that they're at the very least always thinking about that. Right. Like, why do women ride buses? Most of their they use buses more than men in the day, but they don't use them at night. Why can't you find a smartphone, an iPhone that's smaller than 5.5 inches? And actually, um, I remember I feel like, Mike, you and I were hanging out in like France or something and you, you were sitting next to me and you said you said something like, Mike, you don't have big hands. Uh, and it's as I do not have big hands as a man. And so this is like one of the areas where I actually can like very directly empathize with the plight of a woman who's like, why? And, and the new like iPhone mini is like not mini. Like we do not have phones that like fit the hands of half the population. And like, that sounds like, oh, ha ha tee he's silly. But then like that just, that's everywhere. Um, and actually the one that connects most to James Scott in my mind was, I think it was in Sweden where like the city planners were plowing, they prioritized plowing the arteries of the city because people live on the outskirts and they drive in. Well, who's actually living like driving in? It's mostly the men who like disproportionately have the jobs in the city center and then drive back. And they weren't plowing like the sidewalks or in the smaller streets around the city, which is disproportionately what the women were using as they were running errands, et cetera, based on, you know, gender roles. And they were having like, this was leading to all kinds of accidents for women. And they finally like got off their butts and were like, hey, like, why don't we actually like plow these other smaller ones so that like the, the female pedestrians don't like slip on the ice, you know, in, in, in rela relating it again to Scott, like how do we make the female experience legible to decision makers? I feel like legibility is like, for me, it's like one of the main concepts from Scott. It's like, what's, what's visible to us, what's invisible? Um, the final thing I'll say about the book that I'm still kind of trying to digest is her policy prescription is to produce gender disaggregated data. We need to know we need in all of our data sets, there needs to be a column. It's like male, female, um, and potentially some other categories, but at least like, you know, at least distinguishes male versus female. And so we can like tease apart these experiences that currently stands as my only quibble of the book is that that feels kind of like a technical panacea to me. Like if only we had better data, we'd make better decisions. I think it's like, it feels like necessary, but not sufficient. Cause there's, there's also a lot of norms and cultural biases built into these systems. I think we do need better data, but we need to be thinking about the reasons why we don't have better data and like what assumptions are behind those. Because the time and time again throughout the book, she's like, and just, we just need better, we need gender segregated data. Like, that's the answer. And I'm like, I think it's part of the answer, but like, it's not just a technical problem. And I'm, I'm aware that I, you know, I might not be characterizing her position totally fairly, but like, that's what I heard. And like, that was my response. Um, so that was like the book I was most excited about talking about today. And I do think it connects, uh, it connects to a lot of like, Oh, sorry. One final thing is I had like an aha moment when I was listening to the book because I was working with some folks in Southern Africa who were trying to work with local communities of livestock owners. And they said, well, we're going to set up, we're going to subsidize 
um, like rotational grazing systems for these livestock owners so that they better manage the landscape so that we reduce erosion. That sounds great. Uh, but it turns out that the only people who own livestock in these rural communities are men. And women also use these grazing areas, but they don't use them to like herd livestock. So the women are like left entirely out of this like development slash conservation picture. And for me, it was just like one of these like holy shit aha moments where I'm like, okay, like this book is helping me understand and explain things that I'm seeing in the world in my face right now, like during this Zoom call. Um, like the, the women in those communities are illegible and invisible to this program that otherwise I was feeling like very positive about. It was like, oh yeah, great rotational grazing. This is good. Help these people. But the people were men. Um, and that's, you know, it's kind of what we want in a book in some ways is like, it helps us, uh, make sense of the world when we're actually in it. Favorite book of the year. I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> That's what I usually say to a guest after they've talked too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, so I wasn't going to mention this book, but it's one that I read um, read a while ago and, and reread parts of it this year, which is um, Donut Economics by Kate Raworth. Have you guys read that? I've and, read it, yeah. Um, ah, there you go. Mm -hmm. And she, I mean, there's, um, you know, feminist economics and... Um, and some ecological economics and others get into exactly what you're saying, Michael, and the idea that, but they sort of generalize it more to the reproductive economy that we don't invest in that. And we don't invest in um, like regeneration. And I think, and then draws, so Kate Raworth does a really good job of drawing a connection between that and the way that we uh, look at the earth, you know, and like the regenerative properties of the earth and ecosystems. Um, but she, I, she does a really great job making the case for policies that support um, women and childcare and care for the elderly. All of these sort of care type, you know, I think the care economy is another way people talk about it, that those are just invisible um, and predominantly fall upon women. And that that is a big part of what we need to do if we're shifting, you know, if we're thinking is the intersection between that and, and these environmental dilemmas, just like what you said, right? We're, if you're going to take a development um, program and go into a country and support the men and their livestock, um, you might be having a lot of inadvertent uh, impacts on the economy in other ways, right? Because of, because women are, are not captured in that. Hmm. Yeah. And you often don't know what you don't know. Like you don't even realize that you're missing the stuff that you're missing. Mm -hmm. Mike was so maybe they, well, the, the, the I was going to ask Mike if donut economics was one, was that one of your books since you just pulled it up? That's, that's one of my books on the, uh, on the, I want to read next, but there's like 10 that I want to read next. So I'm not sure how it usually, it becomes a fairly random process where something looks interesting at that moment. And I pick it up. Um, but yeah, that's definitely on the, on the, the list. I've, I've read bits and pieces of it, but I want to sit down with the whole thing. Yeah. I, it's super well-written and accessible and like a fun, that's like sort of a weird thing to say, but it's like a fun one to read at night, which is not typical for any book that has economics in the title. But also has donut. <laughs> it does also. Have donut. <laughs> well put. So Mike, what you've been reading? 
So um, one of the, I think the the one that I wanted to mention first uh, today is a book by Octavia Butler. Do you know who she is? Um, uh, maybe. She is what I think it's her story. Her life story is just fascinating. I mean, she uh, she's an African American woman sci-fi writer, and those words do not all go together very frequently. But she wrote. Um, it was a it was a two book series, um, and the one that that I wanted to talk about was called Parable of the Talents. And Parable of the Talents. This was written in I think in the mid eighties, and it was kind of a precursor to The Handmaiden's Tale. It was about this uh, religious right taking over the U.S. government, and and she. Uh, in the civil war that followed, she, as a, as a, was a teenager and as, as then as a young adult became kind of this like cult like leader of, a, of a, a movement in, in response to this and reading it now was really interesting. Uh, the, the president of the, of this religious right movements, uh, uh, election slogan is, make America great again. And I read this and I was like, what, what, you know, this was, this was mid eighties again, make America great again. And it was a lot of what play has played out over the last uh, several years. I was just really blown away. And I think that was what was most, uh, most moving for me. I mean, this, the story also is, is, is really nice, but it was written from the perspective of an African-American woman. Um, and I just thought it was, it was really powerful. Mike, do you think, do you think that, or where do you see the balance between fiction and nonfiction in terms of stimulating your ideas about understanding society and giving you more ideas for linking back to your own yeah, work? Yeah, in this one, I, I thought, so there, there were definitely some, uh, I don't even know if science fiction is quite the right word or, or speculative fiction, but it was kind of like uh, magical realism. Like she had certain powers. Um, some of them, though, are not that far off from like everyday person superpowers. Like she was um, I can't remember what the what the, the word is that they that she uses in the book. But the lead character is is super empathic to the point where if someone else is in pain, she physically feels that pain. And so people can, if the, if people find out about this, they can use it against her. Um, but, uh, so they try to keep that hidden, but at, at other points that empathy builds her leadership style and brings people to her, um, which, which makes it, and, and then there's all kinds of, you know, family squabbles and sagas and and so on going on around it but but those were the things that really drew out but to to your point Stefan, i think you can see the 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 links with what's going on in the world around you and and i don't want to overplay those in spite of the make america make america great again part of it there were there were parts that are in the, in the same way with the handmaiden's tale i don't know if you've all read that or watched the series or anything but I mean, 
there there are parts that have that resonate so strongly because of what's going on around us, but we can also overplay those a bit too. Um, Anyway, I I I, I uh, highly recommend that one. Yeah, I've heard um, Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale, say because she's does she's science fiction, and she said that at one point I heard this that um, everything that's in her books is like nothing is out of the realm of possibility in terms of technology or politics. It's like it's all drawn out of historical. Um, events and or current state of technology, which sort of blows your mind and then gets really scary. Did anyone else read mm. fiction this year that made it onto their list? I read, uh, I think my favorite fiction book this year was The Overstory by Richard Powers. I've just been getting a lot of press. It's really good. It's, it's been referred to as like a love story to trees. I really, I li really love trees. Um, it's just really beautifully written. Um, I don't want to say too much about it. It's basically about a set of different characters. It's funny, like the story to me was actually less interesting than just like listening to the prose and the language. It's just someone who's very good at writing. And so it's just kind of a joy to hear what they can do with English. Um, and actually, so I'll mention two books in one. The, the other book that I've uh, started um, but I've not finished is called trick mirror by Gio Tolentino. It's also very popular now. Um, it's a series of essays. I forget where, where she works. Like it, it's, she either works now for the New Yorker or another like similar magazine. Um, she's an essayist and, uh, she's got a chapter called like always be optimizing. And it's just about her living in like an internet filled world where you're constantly over optimizing yourself. Um, and it's beautifully written, like the, the language can be a bit dense sometimes, but it's just like, it's fun to hear what she can do with English. Um, so those two books actually I enjoyed for similar reasons, although the content's like quite different. In, in the overstory, do you know that part where he's talking about how the trees are communicating with one another? Mm -hmm. Do you know how much of that is true? It's true. I'm forgetting this woman's name. It's this professor out of UBC, University of British Columbia. Crap, I'm forgetting her name. She's gotten a lot of press. She has, I think she has a TED talk, but it's been like this revolution in the last like 10, 20 years, whatever it is, in understanding of forests, because what we've learned is that trees will sh like share nutrients through like the mycorrhizal network, and they'll even like share resources across species. A tree will share resources when it's dying. Um, and so there's the, the conclusion is just that the forest ecosystems have a much more pro-social connectivity than we ever gave them credit for. And of course it has management implications because if you assume a system is only based on competition, you're going to manage it very differently than if you think it's has competition, but also, um, a lot of cooperative processes as well. Cause that means that once what I do here might affect that tree over there, if this tree is helping that other tree versus if they're just competing. Oh, Suzanne Samard. That's the name of the psychologist at UBC. Um, she's like leading the charge in understanding forest ecosystems in that, in that way. Yeah. I, I loved the part where there was, I, she was talking about the, I think insect infestations in one part of the forest and trees in other parts of the forest get the signal that they need to start increasing certain chemicals. Uh, as a way of warding this off. Um, well, there's been, 
apart from that work, there's like acacia trees in some parts, maybe all parts of the world. I, just, I don't know. Um, if one of them starts being predated on by an insect, the ones nearby will start increasing their production of certain chemicals to ward off the insects. And I remember talking to a forest ecologist friend of mine, a guy at Dartmouth named Matt Ayers, and I said, Matt, isn't that amazing? Like how, you know, how did that come about? And his, his main response to me was, he said, Michael, he said, Michael, trees don't talk, they listen. And so is that what his idea was, I mean, it's an evolutionary story, but what happened, right, is that like um, some trees had, you know, a mutation that led them to have a response that um, part of the chemical response of the tree that's getting it predated, just it happens to disperse some kind of chemical agent. Some of the other trees, you know, you have variation in the response of the other trees. If one of the other trees has a response to pump up its own chemical defenses, that's going to be evolutionary adaptive over time. So they're listening. So the adaptive response is on the part of the other trees to listen to this chemical signal. Maybe a forest ecologist will come in and just say that I'm totally butchering this, but it's like it's in that direction. But that's fascinating. Super cool. I had one other uh, fiction book on my list. Um, I don't know if you've read any of this series by uh, Hilary Mantel or if, again, watched those movies. Um, the latest one, The Mirror and the Light, this is all about uh, Cromwell um, in England. It's this historical fiction, super, uh, super dense. I mean, the books are, are massive. And this was the, the third. Um, the first two, Wolf Hall and, and what is it? Bringing up, the, bringing up the Bones, I think is the name of the second, have already been made into miniseries. Um, it's fascinating, the inner workings of politics, basically. Uh, and it takes these classic stories on, you know, the English, uh, monarchy and puts it, it, it's, so it's very rich in, in true or, or in, in factual detail. Um, but then it adds all kinds of nuances to the characters and what they were thinking and why, and, and all the backstories. And it, it's just fascinating um the and the writing is is exquisite and that when i've not linked to my class i can't <laughs> i can't figure out how i would ever link it but but they're they're quite good books um but that's like beach reading you need a lot of time with it and if you if you listen to the audio version michael you would uh hit the rewind button hundreds if not thousands of times because the writing is so so rich um, that that you don't grasp it quickly. I, I would have to reread sections, and I usually don't do that at all. Courtney or Stefan, any other ones? I don't have any other fiction. Or, or nonfiction. Nonfiction. The one that I wanted to mention, um, so I read this with a reading group this year, which is another question around that I had for you guys. Of, do you... What do you think of reading groups of going chapter by chapter and what you get out of that? But anyways, I um, read Carolyn Finney's um, Black Faces, White Spaces. I know I've mentioned this both to Michael and Stefan. Um, and I really liked it. I think it's a really um, important book, you know, and it's an important time, I think, to be reading it. And there's Stefan's copy. <laughs> um, this year, you know, Michael, you mentioned, you know, trying to like, diversify um 
your reading list. And I think for all teachers and professors of all kinds, we need to be doing that right now, thinking about whose voices we're centering. And I think this book does a really good job of um, sharing a perspective and a story and research about African-Americans and the environmental movement, um, both, you know, in terms of how, um, how, well, I think she talks about it as like synergies and these conflicts, right? So it's not a clean cut story of like, here's what we knew, need to do to, um, you know, bring African-Americans into the environmental movement or, you know, reframe our historical vision of um, what the role, the role of African-Americans in the environmental movement, but think about stories that come out of communities um, and representation and, um, and how, like, what's the role of policy? What's the role of these NGOs, you know, and, and like the national park service. Um, anyways, I, I, it's, I think it's a really great book and I think it's something that we should all be reading and thinking about right now. And one thing, one thing that really stuck out to me, um, the framing, I think she's got a chapter about this or it's like one of her, her core, um, threads is around memory and not just individual memory, but collective memory and how collective memory of a community shapes our experiences. Um, and this, you know, I had self-reflection for myself on what that means. I hadn't really thought about collective memory before in terms of like the stories that we share and how that shapes what we do and, and how we view things. Um, but getting into the collective memory of African-American communities, going back to Jim Crow and going back to slavery and intersecting that with the environmental movement. Um, she does a really powerful job of, of um, walking through some of that and, you know, finding both sort of space for growth and spaces of conflict in it. Um, so you leave with a lot of questions, but a lot of, I mean, maybe new framings to ask questions, which I think is helpful. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I'm also working my way through it. And thanks for that recommendation, because it's been really nice to think about that. Made me think, because I did a environmental studies BA program and made me think back to the the types of narratives and histories which are told within that program. And it's just a reminder that, you know, there's as many histories, if not more than there are people who lived and the, which histories get told and which histories get shared and which histories contribute into that collective narrative is, that's an interesting press process to reflect on. It's a lot of the people who get into power positions and who have written the books in the past and how that makes it way makes its way into the education system and then how that gets locked into curricular systems um, and how those those cycles of repetition of learning about very specific and limited histories has shaped the public understanding but also our research field and understanding yeah, as well I so I'm only about uh, 50 pages into it, but that's what I've taken away and I'm looking forward yeah, to Yeah, and I think rest. when you're reflecting on it, it makes you realize, I think she does a really good job of um, linking how representation in media, this sort of who has the right to frame memory and narratives and whether or not, you know, an individual aligns with that, um, how that then intersects with NGOs or organizations and their mission, 
of like whose narrative informs that mission as well as policies, um, which I hadn't really connected all of that in a way that I think she does really powerfully frame that that can be self-limiting. You know, it can be both, you know, collectively limiting, right, in terms of access and privilege, um, but it can also be self-limiting in terms of the stories that are shared. So I found I found that really powerful. Michael, when you were th- talking about Invisible Women, I just I was thinking of this book, too. It, it was a lot of links between those two books, at least the way that you described it. I mean, similarly, this sounds like it could really contribute to a curriculum. Yeah, I think so. Very much. I mean, I think that's part of, I don't know if that's part of where, I mean, I think she says her audience is both academics and, um, you know, the public more broadly, but she does bring a lot of research into it. Um, Mm. So I think it, I think it would be, I think it has been used in a lot of environmental studies classes and should be. Um, But the context in which I read this was um, the, so the Center for Environmental Policy and Behavior at UC Davis um, that Mark LaBelle is a part of, he's, he's been on. Um, I got looped in with a group of students that were doing a reading group on this. And so they had a couple other papers as well, environmental justice papers, but we're doing it chapter by chapter. And it was interesting. I, it was really helpful to break it down, you know, week by week. But I think certain books lend themselves to that. Others don't. I think this one does. Um but I think it's helpful to have a space to unpack books like this. Hmm. I, uh, to, to answer your question earlier, Courtney, I um, had a reading group with two good friends of mine in Hanover for about eight months. One's an anthropology professor and the other one's uh, uh, the debate coach for Dartmouth, actually, who's just essentially professionally well-read. It's a lot of fun to talk to him. And, you know, they, they both like dark historical political economy. So it was like quite an upbeat group. Um, <laughs> I loved it. I love the idea of it. You know, I feel like in academia and other like, you know, I don't know, among the hard charging set, it you can sometimes feel both intellectually and emotionally isolated. So it's nice to have like create spaces where people can talk and share the ideas and kind of slow down. A book that didn't really make it on my onto my list, but I really like. And of course, I'm forgetting the authors. Mike and I were talking yesterday about how it's really hard to remember authors. The name of the book is The Slow Professor. It's a really great book about, you know, as, as academics really slowing down and taking uh, inspiration from the slow food movement. Um, so I feel like reading groups like this, getting back to like loving learning. I love the idea. We have not kept up with it because, of course, we're too busy. Um, but I love the idea. <laughs> so listeners are not going to be able to tell because they can't see him, but Stefan judgmentally shook his head. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, but I would love to get back to it. I mean, we've talked about having like, you know, some kind of reading group function on the podcast as well, which would be fun. Yeah, I've never tried it, but it, it seems really useful. If you can get a good group, I think, you know, if you get people to commit to things and I, I would be afraid of the commitment, you know, that you didn't feel forced that you didn't do it. And then the day before you got to stress about it and then, then it's not fun. But uh, probably the discussions and connecting with your friends, if they're people you enjoy talking to, that sounds really yeah. fun. So what you're saying, Stefan, is you need to find some other people that you enjoy talking to about books. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. 
so I'm I'm um, partway through this, so this is an in process. But is um, the book Erosion by Terry Tempest Williams? Oh. So I think it's recent. I mean, it's recent. I think it came out last year, and there's a new edition this year. It might be the um, paperback because I have it in paperback. And um, so there's a there's a essay in it about COVID times. So it's definitely recent. Um, but it's a series of essays from I think a span of ten years, and it feels right for this moment in that. Um, it's like meditation on loss and tragedy and how we cope with environmental loss. Like the, the main thrust of it is, you know, environmental degradation um, and these changes that we're seeing in landscapes around us and the, and the like deep emotional loss and trauma that comes with that. But reflecting on it in a way that I feel like is, is, you know, gives um i don't know give, gives you sort of tools or ways to process and this is something i've struggled with for a while is you know these topics that we study with climate change and with you know water scarcity and um you know all sorts of environmental dilemmas are we can sort of put these lenses on where we can think about them really objectively um strip them down and the goal, you know, we tell ourselves is we're trying to make it better, um, which I'm, I'm not I'm not questioning that. But uh, but we I think sometimes use that as a way to, like, strip away the emotional aspects of it for ourselves. And what initially brought me to doing this type of work is, you know, a deep connection with the natural world and, you know, the ecology around me. And I think I've sort of pushed that away. And this book is like giving me tools to let myself feel that more, you know, and, mm. and feel the, feel the loss, but be able to like feel the beauty in it too. There's a term I once heard to describe what it sounds like you're talking about Courtney, which is bibliotherapy. <laughs> yeah. It definitely feels like therapy. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. Like, I don't say that judgmentally at all. I, lo I like bibliotherapy. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's all the structure of it is really nice too in these vignettes because it feels like these little packets that you can sort of take and sit with. And then when you're ready for the next, you go and like when you're ready for the next cry, you pick up the next <laughs> essay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I haven't found, I haven't found a book like that, um, that, you know, allows you to sort of get into that space with such beautiful writing too. You know, she's, she's really amazing. One of the, uh, that reminded me of uh, one of the books that's on my, um, I'm going to read this next list with several others is, and I mentioned it to, uh, to Michael the other day is uh, Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And it's, it's a book about, um, again, it's, it's kind of speculative fiction, but it's about uh, climate change has happened. And here's the perspective from all of these different people. And it's really taking current science and, you know, kind of extrapolating forward. So some of it, uh, again, I haven't read it yet, but some of it, it sounds like it could be seen as extreme, but it's really not. It's it's what's going on uh, in, in, in what's happening in, in our world. Um, and, Kim Stanley Robinson is just a fantastic writer. His other books, 
is Mars series is all about geoengineering. And it's, again, it's taking things that are happening around us now and then taking those arguments and putting them into a story that, that really draws out the various threads and ideas um, in them. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, to that book. Have any of you all read, um, so I taught a course on the Green New Deal this fall. And so I shopped around a lot of books over the summer to assign for it. And one of the ones I looked at was The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. Um, it's well known as being uh, punishing. I mean, it basically, it, it, the title kind of tells you the tone of the book, which is a description of just how bad things are already kind of locked into being. And I uh, struggle with this in particular, in like, not particular, I struggle with this in predictable ways for me. Um, I was just like numb after like a couple chapters of just like, okay, when is he going to like take his like foot off the gas on like the highway to hell here? Because it was just, oh my goodness. And I mean, I, sometimes I've, I've struggled with the narrative um I mean, this, this relates to human motivation as well. I think a lot of people feel frustrated that, okay, do we need another, like every time you get climate news, uh, what you hear is that things are essentially always worse than we thought they were like six months to a year ago. And I just, I feel like the human brain doesn't know what to do with that. I remember reading uh, a magazine article a while ago about a piece talking about it was a water-based charity and what they decided was we're going to not talk to people about how bad things are we're going to tell them what the good things that we're doing with their money and the successes that are being had and i don't honestly know whether that's that made me feel better right which i like i really like feeling better <laughs> um but this relates to what you all are talking about is that I, 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 I want to face things that are going badly, but I need a therapeutic process, something that's kind of got a humanistic narrative accompanying it, which sounds like partly what was happening with you, Mike and Courtney was that there's, it wasn't just like, mm, things are bad, but um, some way to help you work through the emotions. I mean, if, if they're too bad, I mean, you just give up, right? Right. You go back to like trying to get more likes on the shiny screen in front of you. <laughs> if, if, if it's not bad enough, then you don't act. And if it's too bad, you don't act. Right. So one of the books on my list, which goes right from um, Mike, what you just talked about, um, is All We Can Save. Have you guys seen this? It's I just looked it up so that I would have the authors. It's Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine Wilkinson. It's a collection of essays. Um it's all women authors, which is really cool. And it's all about that, exactly what you're saying, Michael, of like trying to think about courage and hope for the climate crisis. So I'm really looking forward to reading that. Maybe that's one for your class. <laughs> I actually, it's on my list. I would, maybe we could read it together, Courtney, cause it's, um, I want to read it for the sec I'm teaching the Green New Deal course again next year. And I wanted to see whether that would be a good fit. Yeah. I've seen a few essays published in different, you know, outlets from it and they're really good. Okay. Okay. I'll make one more, one more on my list, which I don't really have that. I, I know very little about it, but it's um, braiding sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. So, and I, I think it also falls into this camp of like pulling from, in that case, it's like indigenous 
wisdom and history and bringing that together with more Western science to think about stories of hope and, and how we connect to the planet. So maybe those are our hopeful, our hopeful lists for 2021. It seems like we need that framing. <laughs> yeah. And the show notes, maybe I can have like a section. So it's like, if you want to feel bad, read these. If you want to feel good, read these. Yeah. But do you, yeah. you sort your, your uh, music by, by mood, Michael? hundred <laughs> percent. How'd you guess? Yeah. I have like, how does Michael want to feel? <laughs> I actually literally do that. <laughs> like, which emotions are we going to work through today, buddy? This one. So, so we people go by genre or alphabetically, others just go by mood. Right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, they overlap. Um, Courtney knows one of my favorite songs of 2020, which is the Higher Love cover, which I shared with you yesterday. Courtney, I shared it with Mike. I had Mike watch the YouTube video during our call yesterday. Did you feel like immediately pumped? I, it was it was great. I, I felt like I was immediately thrown back to like 1988 or something. <laughs> and you were like having fun in 1988. A better time, right? It was a better time, yes. <laughs> better than 2020. <laughs> that's definitely in like my feel good playlist right now. That's a great song. Yeah, that's great. Stefan, you were about to weave three books together. Uh, but th the first one was Nudge. And I think for anyone who's interested in social science in general, this is a really popular book and probably many of you have read it before, but definitely high on the list. Uh, but the other one that Richard Thaler wrote is called Misbehaving, and it's the history of behavioral economics. And I think that's particularly interesting. I think, of course, if you're interested in behavioral economics, but also just to see how a research field evolves over time and how they come to ask the research questions that they do and the person, how personalities shape research fields. And that's, that was really interesting takeaway from a little bit of a broader perspective. Uh, but it leads up to to their nudge insights and and i think nudge was the more popular book there because of that but the other book that i wanted to recommend was doug wilson's book the paradoxes of trans uh, the paradoxes of transparency the science of ecosystem approach to fisheries management in europe and i like this book a lot and i i think back to it often because it's in the same way that i think back to far-fetched facts richard Bottenberg's book which i recommended before which was about development because this is also a book which asks a really big question in science right now, even though it was published in 2005, and that's is how do we integrate science into decision-making and why doesn't it work well like we want it to? And that's very similar to the question that Rottenberg explored in, in Far-Fetched Facts with Development. And he, he gives the case study of um, fisheries, like multilateral and multilevel governance fisheries, policy in the EU and why it's just so difficult, despite everyone's uh, best efforts between all the scientists who are involved, all the states who want to do it, and why, because we've created a machine, why that machine doesn't turn out exactly what we want. And he's a sociologist, so he takes a more science and technology study approach to that. And that's it's just a fascinating book. I always think back to people we always have so many discussions in science about how, how do we better integrate into policymaking. And that process is so complex. And this book does a great job of unpacking why exactly that is the case. Um, I, can, I can end, I guess, on a hopeful note for one I wanted to read in 2021. And that's uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics. 
Uh, I really like Michael Pollan's writing. I read he's mostly a food writer, so I was pretty excited when he wrote and this book came out. I think it was either last year or the year before. And that looks fascinating to well, maybe it can help you deal with the the climate trauma, Michael. <laughs> um, I don't know, but you know, Michael Pollan's writing, it's if any of you have read his books before, he's very much uh, getting involved in the cases that he does. So I think in this book, I've heard of a podcast or two talking about it. He, he basically tries all the different psychedelics once and he writes about his experiences, but I haven't read it yet. And I'm really excited to hear about the, all the science that's being pushed out. And I know this last year or last two or three years has really been a big push for doing or legalizing the science around psychedelics so that they can do more studies and look at things like PTSD and end of life care and, yeah, some of the big issues we have with uh, with the mental health in society. One more book on on my list. I, I have well, I have dozens on the list, but one more that I uh, thought might be interesting. And Stefan, you might may have read this. I I don't know if it would normally make my short list, but um, I ended up really enjoying it. It was a book uh, on the Galapagos. Have you read Elizabeth Hennessy's book, Stefan, uh, no. on the back of of on the backs of tortoises, and and I, I read it because uh, because it was based in the Galapagos or on the Galapagos. But what I liked about it was that it got into uh, how evolution and and history, human history, or human and natural history are intertwined. And when we talk about conservation, um, it, it's taken a lot of con bio arguments and and. Um, kind of unpacking them in, into a, a, a nice little story. You know, what are we trying to uh, conserve? What is the state of nature that we want in the Galapagos? Is it uh, from pre, um, pre-discovery or something else? Like, what are we trying to get back to when we say we're creating a park and, and we can't have people interacting in some ways, but we're allowed to in other ways? And um, just really nice writing. And you know, it gets into Darwin and the history of the islands and that stuff's really fascinating. Um, and, and just to, to read about it in general. On the cool. Back. I'll have to check that out. It reminds me that once a, a few years back, there was a radio lab about conservation on the Galapagos. And I just remember at some point they were just gunning down goats from helicopters and that just stuck in my mind. Yeah. I think we talk about that in here too. They talk about that and also rescuing some of the tortoises and, you know, they would put the tortoise on their back like a backpack. They would wrap, wrap the rope around it. And, you know, here's a hundred pound backpack that they're schlepping out of these volcanoes. <laughs> just crazy stuff. Uh-huh. Well, and, and the, the, the gunning down the goats from the, the helicopter. And then they also had a, a Judas goats. Have you heard of the Judas goats where they. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mention it, that's part of it. Uh, the tame goat and, and and let it loose and all the other goats because their uh, social would, would, would gather together and they'd find the stragglers so that they could shoot them all out. What a conservation job, you know, you, you know, I just feel bad for that intern who like volunteered to go to the Galapagos. And then their job is to assist this guy who guns down goats from helicopter for six months. <laughs> right. Well, it's funny. This is a total tangent, but it reminds me I rem- when I was working in New Zealand, I was so surprised that like the environmental ethos there is like the norms are um, about like killing rodents, that that's how you be a good environmentalist, you know, because your feral cats and, and stoats kill the birds. 
in New Zealand because they're not traditional predators there. And so growing up, it's like I was all about small furry animals. And so then to think that it's the flip, you know, that like to be an environmentalist is is actually about eradicating those and trapping them, that there's like as a good young environmentalist, you go out and trap feral cats. And I took a class in my bachelor. It was called Animal Ethics and Science. And that was it's just it always sticks in my head how crazy I mean, medical field is crazy, a little bit more justifiable, probably. But man, the amount of I mean, what you were saying, Courtney, the amount of killing that goes on in the name of ethics is an interesting question. I've, I've been reading quite a lot on this in the last year through the work of one of my students who's who's writing her dissertation on on wild horse management and she's getting into a lot of a lot of work one of the one of the the uh, committee members uh, Karen Bradshaw is has just written a book on animal rights um, so she gets into that uh, from a legal perspective, but the student, uh, it's it's kind of a wide ranging. It's it, it's a natural history or natural philosophy uh, dissertation. It's not a straight uh, science traditional dissertation. It's it's much more like a book. And she talks a lot about rewilding efforts and invasive species. Is there such a thing? Um, it's it's a it's a, a fascinating book that that touches on a lot of these topics about our relationship with nature and and how we view it um, and what we what we think of as as the environment and how to how to how does that impact our management of it any final ones i have a wild card oh okay um it reminds so i think it's interesting amongst this group as the only woman that um I'm curious if you've if you have heard of this, but it's the book Untamed by Glennon Doyle. So going back to the Invisible Woman book, I feel like this is the opposite book of that. It's like this sort of um, it's I love this book. It's so well done. It's really fun to read. Um, but it's like sort of the like shedding of all of the like societal shoulds and how um like the spaces that women are forced into. And it's it's so well written in these vignettes. All of the books that I'm reading apparently are vignettes, but I think most, well, I think a lot of women know about Untamed. I think men should read it because um, I think it's a really great view into like these societal pressures and how we're struggling with them, but also ways to like buck those. Um, she's phenomenal. So highly recommended. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Cool. Man, it's, it's, I'm, I'm feeling like there's a lot of reading to be done in 2021 now. Mm -hmm. one, one other thing I was thinking with uh, 2020 in particular, um, and, and I was thinking about this, and I, I, it applies to, uh, to several of the books that were mentioned here today. Uh, but when, when uh, around the time of George Floyd's death, um, you know, immediately after there was this rush of, of books on anti-racism that came out. And I felt like every day I was uh, getting recommendations on read this book, read this book, read this book, you know, how to be an anti-racist or, 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 or what have you. And then a month after, you know, that kind of dissipated. And of course, 
once you have a recommendation, you don't need it 12 more times. I, I get that. But um, there, there was that discussion and then it just kind of uh, dissipated. And, and I felt like there were, there were a number of waves this year of, of everyone should read this book. You know, then it was all about hillbilly elegies or, um, you know, there was a, there were a series of these and maybe that's always ex existed. And I, I just wasn't uh, receptive or cognizant of it. Uh, but I, I felt like this year in part, maybe because we're all are, are more in isolation and are perhaps are reading more. Um, but I felt like there were just waves and waves and waves of everyone needs to read this book. Everyone needs to read this book. I don't know. Did you feel that as well? I think, well, in particular tied to, um, you know, racial justice, I think there were waves of that and hopefully waves will keep going. Um, but I think there's something to the fact that like our attention is all, it's like almost easier to get an audience and to like build a little movement around this is a moment, right? Given that we're all just sitting at home in our computers. Mm. Well, I guess not all of us, I should recognize that. There's a privilege in that, that we're sitting at home in our computers, so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. I had two more books I wanted to talk about, but I feel like it's just not time. I don't know. It's a really great book about psychiatry I read, but called Unhinged. It's really interesting. Psychiatry has some problems. There was a, there was a book a couple of years ago that was about psychiatry, the early stages of psychiatry and the, the, the movement into frontal lobotomies and, mm. and all of this. And it was written by the son of one of the leading psych psychiatrists that did this, that led this movement. I'll have to look at what it was. It was just absolutely fascinating. And you don't realize, you don't learn of the author's relationship until towards the end. And interesting. Um, it was, it, it was, yeah, it was a super interesting book in terms of what they did and how they experimented on people and, and, and yeah. the hubris involved in, in doing some of this. Yeah. I mean, the critique of the book that I read is it's obviously less about that because it's about like psychiatry and the tooth than the aughts. It's more about the overdependence on pharmaceuticals, the awkwardness of the DSM, um, the role of drug companies and drug reps, and our surprisingly simplistic understanding of the biochemical nature of hum of mental illness the idea that we can boil it down to like just push the serotonin lever when in interestingly studies of folks that do have mental illnesses aren't necessarily like biochemically imbalanced the way that the theory would predict so it's it's, it's really quite interesting actually there are analogs from it to like how we think about policy is like just pull the the lever on uh the interest rates and things will go better it's like what things are kind of complicated. That's funny. In, you know, I, I referenced uh, the January 3rd uh, date in the, in the Philip Dick book it, that on uh, the precursor to Blade Runner. It also starts with that, that he's taking his, he hooks up to his mood machine and dials in for, I want to be productive at work today. And then it doses him up for for that and his wife is kind of rebelling against this and she says i just need a you know a good cry i just need to be sad i'm gonna dose up a depression 
for the day. And he goes, don't do that because you could get stuck. Like this is right. dangerous to do that. And she goes, no, no, no. I've got it programmed to give me a boost of, of, you know, happy, happy, um, after that. Right. Oh, and this gets back to, okay, this is like a whole other conversation, obviously, but just like the way, like there's such a solid critique of the ways in which we exert hyper control over the environment, say industrial agriculture, some aspects of aquaculture, but we do the same things with ourselves. Like not, right. I, we, and we, and it goes back to like episode, like themes of resilience and panarchy. Like there are cycles, right? Okay. It's okay to be like really bummed and depressed sometimes. Like you can let yourself go into that. It's not just like you need to, you know, and what you're just saying, Mike is, is like a bastardization of that. I'm not criticizing you. I think it's fascinating. What you were saying is like, it's okay to be depressed as long as you take your happy drug later. Like you can, as long as you hyper control, even that aspect of it, like we can't let go at all. Like everything needs to be like hyper managed. Yeah, it makes me think, Mike, earlier you were like, what are people going to say, you know, 50, 60 years from now? I'm like, what were they doing? And this is probably some of my own bias, but I feel like it will be optimization. The idea that we can optimize everything, you know, and that that and that we can keep going. Like, I feel like 2020 has shown us that we can't. <laughs> yeah, it, this, this is fascinating, too, because um, we... Um, some of this is good, right? Like if, if we, these drugs were developed to, to help, it's kind of like the critiques on the green revolution, which are, are uh, quite valid, but we have to remember what we were trying to solve. And of course that creates other problems. And then we need to work on those problems. So it's, you know, I, we talked about this a lot in, in, in a couple of my undergrad classes on resilience, um, that resilience in some ways is, is, is uh, the opposite of optimization. And there are reasons why we try to optimize things. And there are reasons that we need to push back against doing that, right? I, I do want uh, uh, businesses to, you know, to become more energy efficient and do things to improve their, uh, you know, efficiencies throughout their company and productivity and so on. But um, it often comes at the expense of, of resilience. I mean, I totally agree, Mike. I mean, I think one of the challenges that intellectualization has is that it con your brain kind of conflates the critique with the dismissal, right? So critiquing something is not the same thing as saying that it's worthless. But I think that our brains kind of naturally make that leap. Um, so to critique the overuse of medications is like absolutely not a dismissal of the validity and like helpfulness of medications. And yeah. And you're the green revolution. Like, I totally agree. Like you want to be able to critique something while being able to hold in your head a sympathetic account for say the motivations of the people that implemented it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I kind of envy Stefan because he's the only one at the end of his work day now. <laughs> Sorry about that, but yeah. No, we've been on vacation a couple of days, so I'm going to go up and play with the little one. I nice. just need one of those productivity doses right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. The In Common Podcast is now officially associated with the International Journal of the Commons and the International Association for the Study of the Commons. You can find more episodes and our new commenting series at your local podcasting app, as well as on our website, incommonpodcast.org. Also on the website, you'll find our blog, a link to our latest poll that we will discuss in a future blog post, 
and an option to give us a small donation through our Patreon account. If you want to support us here or by giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it. And feel free, as always, to reach out with any thoughts or suggestions that you have. Mm-hmm.